is found in the book, uh, the letter of First Corinthians, um, chapter one, verses twenty-six to thirty-one. You can find that on page one one four five in the Bibles here. That's First Corinthians chapter one, verses twenty-six to thirty-one. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God, he chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The second reading is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, page 1, 2, 3, 5, chapter 3, 7 to 13. To the church in Philadelphia, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the world, upon the whole world, to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is the word of the Lord. Great, do keep that second passage open. I um, must just inform you that this sermon is rather like a meal that I've cooked in as much as the first course is quite stodgy and heavy, but we need to eat it. 
otherwise will go away empty. And the second course is a bit lighter and fluffier and sweet. So what I'm saying is you've really got to stick with me for the first course and stick around for pudding. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you that you came as light into the darkness as you sent your Son, the Word. And we pray that you would banish the darkness of unbelief or misunderstanding or confusion in our lives as we read your word and as we read Jesus' words. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen. First course, stodge, but important stodge. Verse 8. I know, says the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have little strength. I know that you have little strength. Uh, Jesus Christ is writing personally to every church, every faithful church down the ages, as well as to the Philadelphian church. And he says, look, guys, I know that you're weak. And I wonder this evening whether we realize, whether you realize that we at St. Michael's Chester Square are weak whether we realize that we have very little strength indeed. It's my first heading, if you're taking notes. Christ knows the church's weakness. Stephen Crabb, he's the Secretary of State for Wales, and he said these words last month. Britain in 2015 is increasingly characterized by a creeping intolerance towards Christianity and towards religion more generally, which we should be deeply concerned about. And I think he's got a point. Um, I mentioned this at the Burning Man talk last term, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself to some of you, but who would have thought an innocuous advert just containing different people repeating the Lord's Prayer would be banned from a chain of cinemas in the UK? Who would have thought that the government would consider mooting plans for an Ofsted-type group to regulate um, church youth work or Christian youth work That only really happens in places like China at the moment. Uh, Just the other day, I was told of a friend of mine, in fact, Iona's brother, was banned from putting posters up uh, for a Christian event in his army barracks for fear that it would offend uh, people of other religious persuasions. And all this is causing a decline in church membership. In an article published this summer, The Spectator predicted the death of Christianity in Britain. Get your diaries out, I'll tell you when it will die. 2067. Thompson, who wrote the article, says this. Anglicans in particular, are we listening, are abandoning their faith at a rate that in more ways than one defies belief. According to the British Social Attitude Surveys, their numbers, our numbers, fell from 40% of the population in 1983 to 29% in 2004, to 17% just last year. The thing is, it's not just persecution from secularism without the church, outside these walls, as it were, which is causing erosion of church membership and keen Christianity. It is secularization within the church, which is really causing a lot of damage. Last year, I was at an Anglican training event for curates, where it was suggested that one really should not preach if one was going to preach at all for more than six minutes. I apologize in advance. Uh, Just the other day, I read an article written by a bishop recommending that clergy shouldn't preach at all at Christmas events. 
And there are strong movements within the church to embrace progressive, secularist, pluralistic culture at every turn and abandon this outdated book, the Bible, at every turn. We mustn't underestimate the strength of that movement. And in the words of the end of verse 8 here in our passage, many today are dropping Christ's word and denying his name, therefore. Now, I don't want us to mishear me. There is much to be encouraged about at St. Michael's Chester Square. I rejoice in you guys. I really do. And there is spiritual life here. The Lord Jesus Christ speaks for Sunday by Sunday. There is conversion and there's healing. There's redemption going on. There's real spiritual life here. I rejoice in that. But I just want us to see that Jesus is writing to us when he says, I know that you have little strength. We need to understand that we are a very small fish in an increasingly unfriendly large pond as we move into 2016. And Jesus knows that. The church in Philadelphia here, they were in the same situation. We don't know much about their particular weakness. It might have been material in part. There was a a kind of really shaky economic time just before we think this letter was written. But it was certainly largely spiritual. If you have a look down, you'll see in verse 9, it was largely caused by persecution from the establishment religion uh, of the day. And that's why the church there had cause to endure patiently in verse 10. It was rough going. And we'll get on to what effect that persecution was having on them in a moment. But just for now, I want us to see that uh, the church is weak, St. Michael's Chester Square is weak as the Philadelphian church was weak, and that is okay. That's okay. Do you notice this letter is one of only two in the series of seven letters, which contains no rebuke whatsoever. No rebuke. You can read it very carefully, you'll find none. Striking, isn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ knows that we are weak, and he says, that's okay. He encourages us to stay faithful, to hold on to his words. We'll come on to that in a minute. But he says, look, it's okay that you're not strong and powerful, impressive. It's okay that not all the seats are filled on a Sunday evening. It's okay the numbers of people coming on Alpha courses are really rather low. That's okay. And I think that's very striking indeed. I wish I was part of a church which was more impressive where all the seats were filled, where uh, people asked me where I was doing my curacy, and I told them, and they said, oh, oh yes. But hardly anyone's heard of us. And Jesus says, that's okay. And that's why we had the first reading uh, from Timo, 1 Corinthians, uh, that, that letter, because there we find the Lord Jesus Christ loves to work through weakness and apparent foolishness. That, that, that's the way he works. He doesn't work through impressiveness or uh, eloquence or amazing PR. He works through weakness. That is the way that he is glorified and not us. So the church is weak. Christ knows that, and that's okay. Second, if you're taking notes, second heading, Christ knows the church's worry. Christ knows the church's worry. Notice what form the Jewish persecution of the church was taking. Uh, Verse 9, if you have a look down. I'll make those of you who are th- those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I'll make them come and fall down at your feet. What the members of the synagogue in Philadelphia seemed to have been saying was, we are the true people of God. 
And if we are the true people of God, then I'm sorry, I'm not sure who you are, members of the church. It's a very, very profound accusation. It's a spiritual equivalent of that Western line, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. And they, they were saying that the adoption papers in heaven had been mixed up. Somehow, these members of the church thought they were God's children, but there'd been a mistake. No, 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 you're not God's children. We are God's children. They were saying, so get out of the family home. The blessings of being God's people do not belong to you, they were saying to the fledgling church in Philadelphia. And as the church members listened to this accusation, I think it would have been very tempting indeed to believe the accusation was true. To ask that question, well, maybe we've backed the wrong horse after all. Many in the church would have been converted from Judaism. Why did I make that, that step? Was that a mistake? I mean, look, if God was really on our side, wouldn't we be more impressive as a group of people? Why would we be so weak if God was really for us? So the temptation, end of verse 8, to drop Christ's word and deny Christ's name crept in. I hope you found it shocking when Timo read that little phrase there, a synagogue of Satan. It's not something you hear at dinner parties very often. And it's, it's a deliberately shocking combination of words. Jesus uses it because what the synagogue are doing there is typical of what Satan has always done throughout world history. Do you remember, he's, uh, one of his titles is the accuser. He is a pro when it comes to undermining Christian assurance in God's love for us. That's what he does, in part. It's what he, uh, tried to, it's what he did in the Garden of Eden. It's what he tried to do with Job. And it's what he tries to do with us. He'll try and do it this week. It's what he does with this church here. He says to us, he whispers to us at St. Michael's Chester Square, if God is really on your side, then why are these seats not full? If God is really on your side, then why isn't the Alpha Course more populated? Why haven't these people John's talking about heard of St. Michael's Chester Square? Why are you not more impressive if God is on your side? And his lies, his whispers, his accusations are very, very tempting to believe. Because as I look around, I think, have I backed the wrong horse here? Is God really on our side? Should I hold on to Christ's words? They seem to me to be making us weak rather than successful. And Satan often works the same way today in, amongst us. See what you think about this. I, I think what happens goes something like this. The established church in our land, you know the Church of England is established, right? And the state says to us, do not rock the boat too much. If you rock the boat too much, if you preach countercultural things, if you challenge what we are doing too much, then you will lose your place at the table, you will lose your voice in the public square, you will lose bishops from the House of Lords, you'll lose your privileges. And so increasingly, and I'm going to put this provocatively to make the point, increasingly within the Church of England there is a division and the division is between these two groups. The first group we might call the inoffensive, nice, established church who endorse everything that secular culture and pluralistic culture says. They only teach what culture is willing to hear around them. 
nice, they're very nice, very easy. The second group in the Church of England are a group I might like to call the Fruitcake Church, and that's us. And the Fruitcake Church are the church who actually believe that Jesus knew a thing or two and was a thing or two. You know, that actually when we pray, things change, or that people can actually be healed when we pray, or that Jesus actually did die and rise again from the dead physically, and that won our forgiveness, and that conversion is not a dirty word, nor is sin, nor is judgment, that heaven and hell are real. We are the fruitcake church, increasingly. Most people write down in their, um, that little box on the um, census, oh, Christian or Church of England, But they would not subscribe to those things I've just said because they are part of the inoffensive established church, not the fruitcake church. Do do, do you know what I mean? And so increasingly we're faced with a choice, and the choice is this. Do we want the state privileges, being the established church of the land, respectable, easy, nice? Or do we want to follow the radical, countercultural teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's a choice each one of us are going to have to make increasingly over the next few years, I think. And increasingly, I think we're going to come under fire from the liberal parties in the established church to say, St. Michael's Chester Square, please toe the line. And sooner or later, they'll stop saying, please, toe the line. And if we refuse, if we hold on to the controversial teachings of Christ, then they will say, that's a bit extremist, isn't it? a bit fundamentalist, a bit dogmatic. If we are the people of God, then who are you, they'll say to us. This town ain't big enough for the two of us. There's been a mix-up in God's adoption papers. I'm not sure who you guys are, but you're extremist, right-wing fundamentalists. And if we listen to them, we might find ourselves in the same predicament as the Philadelphian church. And we look around and we think, well, maybe they've got a point. Maybe we've backed the wrong horse. And it'll be tempting, won't it, end of verse 8, to drop Christ's word and deny his name. So Christ knows the church's weakness. He knows the church's worry. But thirdly, Christ gives the church her task. Christ gives the church her task. This is verse 11. Hold on to what you have so that no one may take your crown. I'm sure all of us have experienced this, but something we've done or or experienced has been so hard that all we've been able to do is hold on. A few of us here are into stupid hobbies like um, endurance sport and triathlons. And uh, you get that feeling a lot when you do that. And to start with in a race, you know, the miles are clipping by and you're ascending the hills easily. And you think, this is a great hobby. What a great choice. But after a while, as, as people say, you hit the wall. And w- whereas before you were full of joy and your head was up and full of glucose and you were happy. And you hit the wall and joy was like a couple of miles back down the road. There's no glucose in your system at all and your head drops. And your legs feel like lead and the hills come at you faster and the headwind is stronger and it's just a disaster. And in those moments, what people say to you from the the sidelines, your supporters, really counts. I remember one particular race um, that I I was in. I'd hit multiple walls, it felt like. I was just nowhere. And it was great to have my family and, and Katie and some friends on the sidelines. And what they said to me was this. They didn't say, go on, John, pick up your pace and sprint. 
I would have had a sense of humor failure. It would have been impossible. But what they said to me was realistic. They just said, hold on. They, they said, hang in there. Just you know, put one more step in front of the next. One more pedal stroke. You can do it. And it was great advice. And I could do it, and I did it. And do you see what Jesus says to us here? He says the same thing. He says, hold on. Verse 8, just, just keep on trusting and obeying my words in the Bible. Just, just keep on not denying my name. That's the task for the church. You know, it might be that we feel we've hit multiple walls spiritually, that we're really low on spiritual vigor. We feel outgunned, outnumbered. We feel made small in those debates in the office, down the pub, in the coffee shops with the other mothers. Whatever it is, uh, we are despised for being a Christian. We feel like we've hit the wall. I want to throw the towel in. But Jesus shouts from the sidelines. He says, just hold on. He doesn't say sprint. He doesn't say go fast. He says, just hold on. Can you hang in there? And I just want to speak to those of us who feel like we've hit the wall spiritually for a moment. I wonder whether your colleagues or your family have moved increasingly away from biblical morality in all sorts of areas. Many of mine have. And you've stayed firm and you've stood still just where the Bible is. You haven't moved. And you feel like a bigot sometimes, or at least made to feel like one. And you feel outflanked by their arguments and you feel bullied, frankly. Well, Jesus says to you, if that's you, hold on. He says, can you go one more week, one more day, holding on to my person, the Son of God, and my way of living, my ethics in the Bible? Can you do that? Don't think about the year, just think about a week. Can you hang on there? Maybe for you, the message of liberalism in the established church is doubly hard to resist, as it is for me. Because not only do we disagree with what they're saying, but I want to agree with what they're saying. I really want to agree with what they're saying. It would make life so much easier. Because their message holds a deep attraction for me. Uh, perhaps you're just tired of your personal struggle to live Christ's way in some area. I'll throw out a few. Maybe it's in the area of sexual expression. You're single, love to get married, that's a battle for you. Maybe you're married and marriage is unhappy, difficult, you'd love to be single. That's a battle for you. Uh, maybe you're same-sex attracted and that's a battle for you. Or, or maybe it's in the area of the romantic life. The Christian guy hasn't come along. You're tempted to go out with someone outside of the church. Or maybe for you, just 2015 was so tough. There was a bereavement. You lost your job. You broke up with him or her. And it's hard to hold on to God's goodness. Or maybe you have a family member or a friend who's living so flagrantly against what Christ would have that it's just so tiring loving them whilst disagreeing fundamentally with them. And at those moments, it's so tempting to accept the liberal arguments, to say, yes, I, I would love to be a Christian without Christ because Christ is such a prickly, difficult character sometimes. I, I'd love to follow him without the difficult ways of living without having to disagree fundamentally with some of the people I love. I, I would love that. But when we listen to those arguments from liberals, they are a siren song to us. They sound deeply attractive, but they will ruin us. 
Because after all, what is a Christianity without Christ? It makes no sense. It's not existent. I wonder if you feel that temptation. Jesus says to you, as he says to me, he says, hold on. Can you do that? Put one foot in front of the other. Can you live another week following him? So Christ gives the church her task. And finally, pudding, Christ gives the church future treasure. Future treasure. So here's the pudding. This is the bit I've really been looking forward to preaching these past few minutes. Verse 7, these are the words of him who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. Uh, What he shuts, no one can open. Jesus says, I know your deeds, St. Michael's Chester Square. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Keys uh, are extraordinary things. Got a few with me, quite a few. Car key. I I looked up the average value of a key. Apparently it's three pounds sterling. But of course, they're worth so much more than three pounds per key, right? Like if I lost these keys, I would go hot and cold. I would phone the police. I'd do everything I could to find them. Because keys are much more valuable than that to us. They open things to us of greater value. They open safes and cars and houses and, you know. And if we're given a key for Christmas... It's like the biggest present ever. It's not three pounds. It's like you gave me a house or a car. What is it? It's amazing. If you'll excuse the pun, the key thing is to work out whose key it is. So if you were to stumble across this set of keys here, John Ash's keys, you would have come upon an average car just parked outside and an average house just down the road in Kennington. You're welcome. If we had stumbled across Queen Elizabeth's keys, we'd really have struck gold quite literally, and she's got a very nice house just down the road. But did you see whose keys Jesus has here? Verse 7. He's the one who holds the key of David. It's not a run-of-the-mill David, David Jones, or David Smith. This is King David. The thing about kings is that they tend to have kingdoms, And if you know your Old Testament at all, you'll know David's kingdom was really rather lavish indeed. I dare say more impressive than Queen Elizabeth's actually now. And therefore, to hold the keys of a king who has a kingdom is a really rather wonderful thing. It opens the door to a lavish kingdom with all the treasure that lies within. Notice that Jesus is going to use those keys. He's not ashamed to use them. Verse 7, he's going to open the kingdom of heaven to some people. And he's going to shut it to others. Notice that there is no other set of keys to this kingdom front door. No set of neighbors who have a spare. No key safe outside. There's no other spirituality that can unlock this door. There's no philanthropic lifestyle that can break in. No other religion. Only Jesus has the key to this kingdom. And if he shuts it to me, it cannot be opened. But get this, if he opens it to me and to you, it cannot be shut to us. Now that is an amazing thing. Verse 8, this is what he says to us. 
I have placed before you, St. Michael's Chester Square, an open door to my kingdom that no one can shut. He says, come on in to my kingdom. And what's in there? Well, not the trials of the last day, Judgment Day, verse 10. In the kingdom, there's treasure. And as we close, I just want us to feast our eyes on some of that treasure, like a finish line in a race. It's all in verse 12, I think. The one who's victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, to start with, it doesn't sound very flattering to be described as a pillar, especially if you're a woman. The thing about pillars is that pillars are permanent fixtures. You know, like if we remove these because we thought they didn't look very beautiful anymore, the whole thing would come crashing down. They are permanent, and that's a good thing. And so this is Jesus' way of saying, in my kingdom you will be with God in his temple permanently, as permanently as a column or a pillar is in a church building. In other words, you will have a season ticket to be with God. Isn't that great? Second thing about pillars, they have a purpose, right? They hold buildings up. I think this is just a little bit of a clue that on that last day, in Jesus' kingdom, in the new creation, we won't be like playing harps and chilling out on clouds. There'll be a real purpose for what we're going to be doing. We'll be ruling the new creation with the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be wonderful. We'll be working and using our gifts, but it'll be perfect. But let's read on. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and I will also write on them my new name. What's all this business about names, do you think? Well, I think it's about personal intimacy between us and God. You you know the first time you meet somebody, maybe you'll meet a a newcomer over coffee later, Um, you kind of get more and more of their contact details over time, don't you? Like to start with, if they're a kind of formal person, they'll give you a business card. And then you might get an email address. Uh, Then you might find their postal address. You go around for Sunday lunch. And then you might have their mobile number and then maybe a Skype address. I don't know what's the most intimate thing. WhatsApp details. But you get more and more contact details. And here, it's as if Jesus is saying, in the new creation, God will give us all his contact details. He'll say, just call me anytime. Scrap the business card, just let's get intimate here. Call me anytime. It speaks about names. And with, with Katie and me, let's take us as an example. To start with, I remember seeing Katie's um, name on an address list for, for, for a holiday. Catherine Cochrane. Didn't see her, I just saw the name, didn't really know her. She was a stranger to me. Then we met one another as awkward teenagers. And it, it became apparent that she preferred to be called Katie rather than Catherine. Okay, log that, because she's quite beautiful. I'm quite interested. Then I discovered what her middle name is, Anne, with an E. Mildly interesting. And then I gave her a new name, Ash, after a few years. And now, we call each other all sorts of silly names around the house. Darling being one of them, right? But the point is, the better you know somebody, the more names you have for them. It's a mark of personal intimacy. And here Jesus is saying, on that day, we will know God as intimately as two lovers know one another. I think that's a moving thing. So as I close, we are weak as a church, and that's okay. 
Jesus knows our worry that our weakness is because God isn't with us, doesn't love us, but he reassures us he does, he is. He gives us a realistic task. He says, just hold on to me and my teaching. Can you do that? Keep your eyes on that finish line, that kingdom door he's opened to us. Feast your eyes on that treasure. Permanence, purpose, personal intimacy with God. Just as I close, in that uh, tough triathlon I was talking about earlier, the run circuit was four times round. So I passed the finish line a full three times before finishing, and it was really painful. There it is. There it is. And every time I passed the finish line, to, to, as proof of how many laps I'd done, I got given a, an elastic band on my wrist. And, you know, in those hours, those elastic bands were my most prized possession. Utterly worthless to most people, just an elastic band. But that, to me, they meant the world. It meant I was one lap closer. And, you know, the great thing about this being New Year, about it being 2016, is that we are one year closer to Jesus coming back. We're one year closer to this kingdom reality being brought to us. One year closer to stepping through that door that he's opened to us. But for the moment, Jesus says, hold on. Can you do one more lap? I'm going to pray.